Hello everyone, happy Tuesday. Welcome back to another episode of the Humane Nation podcast. I'm your host, Allie. It's hard to believe it is August already, my friends, but uh, here we are. (laughs) The past week has been very busy because my husband and I travel out of state for a few days and then over the weekend we helped at a farm sanctuary in Battle Creek, Michigan. But you guys probably already know about this volunteer opportunity because back in episode 7, I believe, Sanctuaries Uplifting Sanctuaries, Ryan from Little Wood Sanctuary was talking about how they, along with several other farm sanctuaries, were teaming up to help Fauna Animal Sanctuary, who has fallen on hard times. I don't know how many times I can use the word sanctuary in a sentence, but... Battle Creek actually isn't too far from where we live, so my husband and I were like, let's go. We're in a position, you know, where we're able to go. Let's go help and be a part of that. So this was actually our first time helping at a farm sanctuary, and honestly, I am so thankful for the experience. Being a part of something that was physically having a direct, immediate impact on the 90-something birds at Fauna, was so worth all of the hard work we were doing. And being able to work beside dedicated and hardworking organizations and volunteers was an honor. It was also great being able to meet Chris from Chubby Goat Acres and Ryan and Molly from Littlewood Sanctuary in person because we've actually had Chris and Ryan on our show before in in other episodes. I'm not sure about everyone else, but, you know, having that experience, having that direct impact on the animals, being able to help the sanctuary, it kind of left me with this feeling of community. And I am so thankful that the farm sanctuary community has welcomed me into their group. And I really hope the rescue community can welcome me into their group. But, um, I'm just, yeah, very, very thankful for that. I highly recommend volunteering at a local farm sanctuary. It's, one, an awesome experience, and two, they need your support right now. You know, all of animal welfare is kind of just being hit hard in different areas, but I specifically want to give a shout-out to the farm sanctuary community because There's a lot happening in their world right now um, between cruelty cases to sanctuaries door closing because of lack of financial support and inflation being just driving up all the prices, making it difficult to buy supplies. And um, they they need the support. And if you need help finding a, a reputable farm sanctuary to volunteer with, please you know, feel free to ask me. You can email me at info at com, or you can use the contact page on our website. If I'm not sure off the top of my head, I can reach out to one of my new friends and see what they say, but um, we'll try to hook you up with, with a group. Like I said, it was really great being able to have that physical hands-on experience because, you know, what we do at Humane Nation is more geared towards advocacy through education, which is important too, and it has its place. 
but it was great having a hands-on experience too. So one more thing I'd like to mention before we dive into our topic today. Um, In last week's episode, we talked a lot about big cats, specifically tigers, but also a little bit about the Big Cat Public Safety Act. I mentioned that the U.S. House of Representatives was going to vote at some point in the week regarding the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And thankfully, by Friday, they got to it and they passed it. Now it will go on to the Senate for a vote, but this is a really big win. And I'm hoping that it'll be a similar outcome in the Senate because I believe a few years ago, the Senate actually voted no on the Big Cat Public Safety Act. So hopefully this time around will be different, especially since there's more public awareness about it. Um, But I'll try to keep you posted as we find out more. The Big Cat Public Safety Act would prohibit people keeping big cats as pets and from breeding the big cats to make unhealthy hybrids. It would also ban the public from having physical contact with the big cats, such as during cub petting and photo ops. You can learn more about this in our previous episode. But for now, let's move into today's topic. Today, we'll be talking about the beautiful and recently endangered monarch butterfly. It's a slight diversion from our usual content, I know, but their existence matters, along with the existence of other vital pollinators. If you're not much of a bug person, I hope you'll still stick around because we'll talk about why they matter and ways you can help the beautiful monarch. All right, let's get started. You know, as I was doing some research for this episode, I couldn't help but think to myself, man, these butterflies are so awesome. (laughs) We'll be talking a lot about biology today, so think of this as your free mini biology class. As some of you may know, The monarch butterfly was added to the endangered species list almost two weeks ago now. And this comes as a major blow because monarchs are incredible living creatures that we as a collective society benefit from. Plus, they are unique in the fact that they are the only butterfly known to make a two-way migration like birds. You can recognize monarchs by their gorgeous, deep orange coloring. They have black veins that run throughout their wings, along with black borders that wrap around their wings, which are dotted with white spots. Moving on to their life stages, monarchs have four main life stages. Egg, larva, or caterpillar, chrysalis, and adult. And it takes anywhere from 22 to 37 days for a monarch to go from an egg to an adult. According to the U.S. Forest Service, while they are only an egg for a few days, monarchs remain as caterpillars anywhere from 11 to 18 days, and they are chrysalis for 8 to 14 days. Once a monarch is an adult butterfly, they usually live between 2 to 4 weeks, unless 
however, that they are the generation that migrates south. Then in that case, they can live up to nine months. But we'll talk a little bit more about that later. By the way, do you know what the difference between a chrysalis and a cocoon is? Many times people use the word chrysalis and cocoon interchangeably, but a chrysalis is formed by butterflies while a cocoon is specific to moths. A female monarch can lay upward of 100 eggs a day. However, she usually will lay only one egg per milkweed plant. Milkweeds are the only plant host for monarchs to lay their eggs on. This is because when a monarch is a caterpillar, they will eat the milkweed and that will be their source of nutrients as it grows and develops into a chrysalis and into adulthood. So the female monarch will only lay one egg per plant so the offspring will have sufficient nutrients to survive and grow. Isn't that awesome? All right. Let's talk about the monarch's migration. As I mentioned before, monarch butterflies are the only known butterfly that makes a two-way migration. You know how some birds will migrate south for the winter and then return to cooler climate areas in the spring and summer? Well, monarch butterflies do the same thing. But not all monarchs will travel south for the winter. You see, within the spring-summer season, there are multiple generations of monarchs. So from one monarch, you know, it lays an egg, and then that egg grows, matures, and then it'll lay an egg, and you know, the system continues. While the first few generations will only have a lifespan of about two to four weeks, the last generation of the season will be the ones that travel south for the winter. So essentially, their reproduction system pauses, and instead of laying eggs at the end of summer, they will make the trip down south to overwinter. Using a combination of sun direction and gravitational pull as their compass, monarchs arrive to their winter vacation homes. For monarchs that come from the east, midwest, and northern areas, they will overwinter in warm, sunny Mexico while the monarchs that come from the west will overwinter in California. That means some monarch butterflies will travel up to 3,000 miles before they get to their designated overwintering location, which just blows my mind <laughs> that these, you know, beautiful, delicate-looking butterflies can travel 3,000 miles once they have arrived, they will cluster together on branches until about February and March when they begin their trip back south and they mate and then they lay eggs. And then once again, the cycle continues. It's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> and as we know, monarchs and butterflies in general are excellent pollinators. Pollination itself is pretty much the reproduction process of plants. So pollen is gathered at the anther, which is one of the parts of the male portion of the flower. A pollinator will gather pollen or rub up against it and then fly to another flower's stigma, which is just one of the female portions of the flower. And don't worry, I'm not going to go too detailed into the various male and female parts of the flower, but 
this process is so vital for not only the flowers to create more seeds, but also for them to bear fruits and vegetables and for those to develop too. Two years ago, my husband and I had a fairly large vegetable garden and it was our first time having a garden like that, which it, it was a lot of fun. But during that time, I realized just how much I appreciate pollinators because we were able to harvest numerous peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers and pumpkins and some watermelons too. And it, it was such a neat experience being able to see, you know, food growing right before your eyes. <laughs> But I watched a video on YouTube of a guy who had to manually pollinate a, a flower because there weren't any bees or butterflies coming around. So he had to use a Q-tip to transfer pollen so his, you know, he could get vegetables. And I think people just forget how important insects like bees and butterflies really are. Like most living things, monarchs have threats too. Fire ants, wasps, birds, spiders, they've all been known to either eat the eggs of the monarch, or the caterpillar, or even the adult monarch butterfly themselves. In addition, our liberal use of herbicides and pesticides have severely impacted the pollinator population, both butterflies and bees. This, this really isn't a good thing because of how important pollination is. Not to mention, climate change and habitat loss is another major threat to monarchs. Sadly, I feel like a broken record at this point because climate change and habitat loss has been the threat to other animals mentioned in the podcast too. The good news is that we can do our best to help increase the monarch population. Probably one of the single best things you can personally do to help monarchs is by planting native milkweed plants because milkweed is super important for the monarch's survival. They only lay eggs on milkweed and the caterpillars get their nutrients only from milkweed. It's important to note that there are over a hundred types of milkweed plants, but only some are actual host plants for monarchs. I'll include a list of monarch-loving milkweed by the U.S. Forest Service in the blog post on Thursday, but I also want to mention that milkweed has been found to be toxic to some animals, so please keep that in mind when planting it. For any farm sanctuary friends listening, please keep milkweed away from uh, farm animals, uh, cows, and goats. Um, yeah, just wanted to kind of keep that in mind and mention that. But you can also make your own butterfly garden that incorporates native milkweeds and other butterfly-loving plants, especially flowers that are pink, white, purple, etc. Although monarchs don't tend to like green or blue colors, so <laughs> keep that in mind. Although monarch caterpillars solely eat milkweed, adult monarch butterflies need nectar from flowers to give them energy. After all, they can travel up to 50 miles a day. Sunflowers, cosmos, and zinnias are just a few ideas of flowers to add to your garden to help monarch butterflies. 
There's a website called monarchwatch.org and you can actually apply to have your butterfly garden recognized as a certified monarch waystation. This is a really cool way to help with conservation efforts. And of course, sharing the information with others, encouraging your friends and family to plant monarch loving flowers in their gardens too. Let's not let these amazing and beneficial pollinators go extinct. Please be sure to check out our blog post from this podcast episode on our website on Thursday. I'll include the links that I mentioned earlier too, including the link to get your garden registered through monarchwatch.org. And that pretty much sums it up for today. It's a little shorter today, but I appreciate you guys so much. And uh, I thank you for your support. Once again, don't forget that you can feature your adopted pet or your foster pet on our podcast. It's our way to promote adoption and highlight fosters still looking for their forever family. So you can fill out the form on our website. Um, the form is called Feature Your Pet, or you can find it on our Linktree link, which is found on our Instagram account. Also, I, I ask that you please subscribe to our channel wherever it is you're listening to this, and we'd be so honored if you gave a rating too. All right, you guys, thank you again for your support and for listening, and we will catch you next time. 